Amen. All right. Open up to the book of Song of Solomon. I was told that starting out this series, it'd be awkward, but that just hasn't been the case, has it? Uh-huh. Yeah, that's right. No, we've, we've loved it, and we've just appreciated learning how to love our wives better, husbands, haven't we? There you go. Yep. Uh, well, today we're, we're, now if you're single, I know some bits got a bit awkward there and there'll be more. Uh, uh, if you're single, maybe you're just pushing through. Maybe it's a dream coming to you. Oh, I love, this is your favorite book and you cannot wait to find a spouse. Uh, or maybe you're just sitting and going, this doesn't all apply to me. Well, it probably will in the future. And we're going to start out with something that applies to everybody equally everywhere. And that is this, you are just a wretched sinner. Way worse than you thought, a lo- way worse than you're ever going to conceive. You are a, a filthy, vile being by nature. And, and even though you are saved, and even for the forgiven, those of us who are born again, you remain to be an inwardly turned, corrupt being. Did you know that? I, I, I trust that you did. I pray that you did. And I uh, am engaged tonight to convince you of that fact even more. Uh, we are all naturally sinful, of course. And by God's grace, even in the blessings of marriage, we see the effect of our sin. We get to a point in tonight's, uh, uh, not quite a narrative, but we get to one of the songs in the song. We get to one of the the portions of the poetry. This is, as we said, Solomon wrote thousands of songs, and this is the song of his songs. This is his greatest hits album, and it's all about him loving his first wife and uh, snapshots of of their uh, uh, early years together. But we get to a section tonight that gets to a uh, a bump in the road. Their, their sin gets the better of them. Something uh, gets in between them. And uh, marriage uh, exists for that purpose, to expose our sin. That, that's one of the purposes of marriage. Not the only, that'd be a miserable purpose if that was his only purpose, but it is one of the purposes of marriage, to expose to you just how selfish you really are. And if you don't think that's going to be true of you in marriage, that's because you're not married, or maybe that's why you're not married. It is true. Uh, God has given three main things to expose to us our sin by grace. He exposes our sin so that we can walk in repentance and renewal. And it's first of all the Bible. You read the Bible and you are not continually coming away from it with an awareness and an understanding. I am sinful. I am falling short. I, I, I do not meet the standards. I, 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 feel, I, I just finished repenting of all the stuff I thought I did last week. And here I am reading this, this new way that I am ungenerous or selfish or the like. So the Bible exists for that reason, but God knew that we can, we can sort of uh, get full of ourselves even as we, we get self-righteous. We read the Bible and I won't, but he gave a, a backup. He gave you the, the church. The church is the next thing. One of the purposes of the church is to remind you of how much of a sinner you are. That is, that as we do life uh, alongside one another in the mission of Christ, we, we rub each other the wrong way, we butt into each other, we, we bump heads and, and, and sparks fly because iron is sharpening iron. And tonight, our, our, our study really centers around marriage and the way that marriage exposes and shows us and makes us struggle because of the reality of our sin. Now, some of us don't, need to, don't really need to be told this uh, uh, by way of convincing you. You're absolutely sure. You grew up maybe with a broken home, uh, uh, an, an abusive, or you've been in an abusive or destructive, harmful relationship or marriage. And, and so you know that when, when two married people come together, it can turn very Ugly, when two sinful people, I mean, come together, it can turn very ugly. Uh, But this is part of the value of the Song of Solomons. That even in a book like this, which is literally the most idealistic, poetic, divine, beautiful, glorious book ever written on marriage and romance, even in this book, 
there is a section where the husband and the wife are at odds between each other and it goes downhill. The value of Song of Solomons is a dose of realism for our day. We have a carnality on one hand and cynicism on the other, which they're identical twins, but, but they're somewhat distinct. In cynicism, we get the ideas, especially like these days, Monogamy is unnatural. It's not how we've evolved, or that's not how God made us. Or, or women are all snakes. You can't trust them. They're out for your money. Or men are all pigs. They're all going to treat you poorly. You just be an independent woman that don't need no man. Stay far away. Uh, we can think of marriage as the, the great prison uh, invented by the patriarchy. That it was. It was invented by the patriarch of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But uh, it, it's this prison that you need to stay away from because it's bad. There's the cynicism that's just rife in our day or the, the carnality that you just encourage. Sleep around, enjoy it that way, uh, have what you want, don't get married because uh, that's not the way to fulfill yourself the greatest. It will, it will require too much of you. Uh, indulge in pornography, take all of the meds you need for your STDs, have as many abortions as you require, but uh, drink in full mouthfuls of the flesh in our world. And, and therefore, you won't like marriage because it will, it will call you to sacrifice your full fulfillment and, and ask you to be exclusive. I and mean, you just don't want that. That's, what, that's the carnality in the waters that we swim in these days. But not only does the Song of Solomons push against the, the cynicism, marriage is beautiful and wonderful. Not only does it push against the carnality, you do have to sacrifice yourself in many ways, and it, it, uh, it, it, but it is the way that God calls you to live and repent of your sin. But it also pushes against doe-eyed naivety, where every young Christian gal becomes Rapunzel, gall you know, gallivanting through the field of daisies and, and getting on a horse with her fiancé who just learned to ride a horse apparently and riding off into the sunset with his long flowing hair and going to rule over a kingdom happily ever after. It does push also against that naivety that, you know, I'm in love, he's in love, we both love Jesus, what could go wrong? Mindset that as a, a marriage counselor, as a pastor, as somebody who does meetings pre marriage before people go to the altar, I've seen a good dose of. Uh, I'm a young guy and plenty of my friends have been married, and I've seen a good dose of that also. The doe eyed naivety is what is really struck today, as well as the carnality and the cynicism, is struck in the passage that we find ourselves in, in chapter 5, verse 2 to the end of the chapter. The Song of Solomons gives us a dose of realism. I remember uh, at one point I was, uh, a couple was sort of handing me their draft vows for the wedding. Now the thing about vows is they're a little bit romantic. They're pretty unromantic because really what vows are, it's not a time to write and, and recite some great Shakespeare poem you found. They're literally like legally binding biblical vows that you make to one another that are the bedrock of your marriage. So in other words, they're not, they're not a time for flowery ideals. And I, had, I was handed this draft vows by some people, and they, here's what we want to say. Almost the exact same thing had happened years prior when I went to a friend's wedding, and this was their vows, and it was filled with things like, I promise to never disrespect you. I will love you fully from my inner being every day of my life. I will always meet your needs, and I will never be selfish. He said things like, I will never, ever put you down. You will always be the apple of my eye, and I will never look at another woman so long as I live. I'm like, this, these are great ideals. Aim at those. 
But the vows are covenants that you're making that, if broken, will, will lead to the destruction of the covenant uh, of marriage. It is not merely a... And, and just reading through, I'm like, you guys think... Maybe nine times out of ten, you'll be fine, but there's one time out of it, you might not be the perfect husband. No, no, no. They, sorry, rip up these vows. You need to start again. Let's go right there. And, and then when you read, like, biblical traditional vows, you realize how, not bare minimum, but kind of bare minimum they are. I love you. I won't cheat on you. I won't dump you because you're poor or leave you in the gutter because you're sick. That's not, that's a pretty low bar. But that is the bond. Now, some of you are thinking, really? this doesn't sound very romantic. That's how it works. Vows are not promising that I'm going to be this perfect husband for you and we're going to love each other maximally with all affection every day of our life. It's saying, I'm going to be to you what God calls me to be to you, a faithful, loving, repenting husband and wife because we are sinners. So, again, the reminder, you are the problem. When marriages go bad, you are the problem. Perfect marriages can only exist between perfect person, perfect people. Now, so is your spouse. Amen? They are the problem. Amen? Anyone willing? Your spouse is a wretched sinner. Amen? Okay, a couple, couple of you, yep, uh, are willing to be biblical. The rest of you are afraid and fearers of mankind. Uh, <clears throat> there has never been any marriage without uh, grit and grime, but, it, but here's the other encouragement. God has never even envisioned a human marriage without sin and affliction that needs repentance and work. There's never been a human marriage without that. So God's design and command and all of his rules for marriage always took into consideration that it was us. We are the sorts of people that he designed marriage for to benefit for our good and his glory. So with that, look at Song of Solomon, verse 2 of chapter 5. We ended the, the wedding ceremony last week with all of their friends and family shouting after them as they ran off in the carriage towards their honeymoon suite. And they said, eat friends, drink, and be drunk with love. It could be interpreted, be intoxicated with lovemaking. They loved God's good design for marriage and they wanted this new married couple to, to be rewarded for their chastity and their faithfulness and to now go and enjoy the consummation of their union. Then we go immediately, not chronologically immediately, but textually immediately into what is obviously not that night but is not a whole lot of time afterwards. And here's what we read. She says, I slept, but my heart was awake. It, this, this is like language similar to uh, the end of chapter one, where it could be a dream sequence, but, but it's, it's not irrelevant. It's not that she's just had a, a weird dream. It's a dream sequence included and inspired by the Spirit to teach us lessons, or it really did happen, but she started asleep in her bed. We're not entirely sure. Commentators argue, uh, but it's, it's hard to get to the bottom of it. Here's what happened. She said, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved, is knocking. So this is why she can't sleep, because her husband is not home. Uh, we'll, we'll go through reasons why he may not be, but here she is on her bed. She's tossing and turning, and she can hear her beloved knocking at the door. He says, open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. All right? You know exactly what he wants. He's at the bedroom door with all of these compliments. You know exactly what's on his mind. Uh, for my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. So he's at the, he's at the bedroom door and he's knocking. Now the question becomes, why doesn't he walk through the door? The answer is that we see a little bit later, she has locked said door. 
so that he cannot come in. All right? This now is the trouble in paradise. Something has gone on that he's, he, for some reason, he, he wasn't going to bed with her. We're not in, entirely sure why. It, it says here his, his head is wet with dew. So that whatever is happening, this is early in the morning. The sun is not quite up. The, the long night has gone, and his head has now got wet with dew. It could be symbolic of sweat. So maybe he's saying, I've been out working. I've been breaking my back for the family. I've been leading the nation as king. You know, I've done my late shift. Now I'm home. Let me into my bedroom. Or... It's, it's supposed to symbolize him running home with eagerness. I've been away from you. My heart was sick with missing you. So now I'm here. I'm sweaty. I got here. And now I'm knocking. Let me in. Or, commentators say, it could be symbolic that dew falls outside. So he's been outside. He's been intentional. This is in modern terminology, we would say he's in the doghouse. He is out of the home, he is out of the bedroom, he has been sleeping elsewhere down in his man cave in Engedi, and uh, uh, he, or he's been following, maybe it's been her fault, and he just followed his own proverb in Songs, which is way less biblical when it sounds, when you say it out loud. He, he just wrote the proverb for himself, maybe, which says that uh, it is better to live on the corner of a rooftop than in the house of a nagging wife. Maybe he's gone off camping because he hasn't been able to deal with her. For whatever reason, he's back, he's eager, he's keen to open the door, be with his love, reunite their intimacy. And uh, uh, so, so it's early in the morning, and he wakes her up, expecting, obviously, the, 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 the uh, double entendres and the text seem to suggest he's looking for a time of intimacy. So whatever the cause, that's his problem. He's out late, didn't tell her, didn't text her, didn't respond to her calls or her pigeons. He's just been out, didn't let her know, and she is half asleep. And then verse 3, now we see her problem. I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? Right? Here's what she's saying. This is a mild to medium inconvenience for me to get out of my bed, go and open the door for the man that I'm covenanted to and who is my king. All right? the, the flow of this, I know we always want to say it's always equally male and female problems. The flow of this passage, the way that it looks, and the way that she comes to regret her actions later, mostly are her problem. Unpolitically unpolitic, incorrect to say, sometimes things are the wives' fault. That's, I know, we'll get cancelled for that. But it happened. This seems like it's her fault. And this is where it starts out. She's going, I'm lying in bed, right? She's being comfortable, okay. She's tired, all right. But she's being selfish. She, she, she gave up the right to always be comfortable and always look after only herself and only share a bedroom with herself when she said, I do. Now she lives with a dude, and there are consequences to that. She doesn't want to let him in, it seems. We don't know why. She has locked the door. She would have had guards outside. She didn't need to. So it wasn't a safety thing. It was a spite thing. Some of your husbands, you've been there. You get home too late. You see all of the missed calls on your phone. And then the door to your bedroom is locked. And here's her silly excuses. This is how we know it's spite. She says, I have put off my garment. It almost sounds like she's actually teasing him, right, through the door. Oh, honey, you don't want to come in. 
um, I've got nothing on. You just, trust me, it would make both of us, you, you're fine out there. I, I haven't put on any of my best dresses. And he's out there going, that is why I want to come in. Please open the door. Or she uses the silly excuse and goes, oh, my feet are dirty. Like any human male has ever cared about the dirt or cleanliness of a woman's feet before he beds her. But anyway, so she goes, you don't, you know, I, I don't have a towel on. I'm, I'm, my feet are dirty. Yeah, I don't want to do this. You don't want to come in. And she's making excuses. Whatever the reason, this is selfish. This is not right. And we see that the, the, the theme of the song comes out to show her own regret. So in verse 4, he does what any man would do. And upon hearing that she has no robe on, he starts to beat the door handle. Uh, my beloved put his hand to the latch. It sort of sounds violent in the, in the Hebrew. He starts rattling the door. Now, he's not really being violent or knocking it down, but it, he's eager now, all the more, to get into his and her bed. <clears throat> but what we have seen is a request. He has desired and he has requested to be with his love, but he's not going to call the guys in with a battering ram to break down the door. He has requested that he wants to be with her, but he's not demanding or commanding or domineering. Throughout this whole passage, he, he came, he said, open to me, my sister, my love. Now, he's, he's perfectly happy to, to make the initiating uh, 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 conversation. He's happy that when she says, eh, maybe not, he's willing to, you know, make a barter and maybe push a little bit. Hey, come on, we can make this work. He's fine with that, but as a biblical husband, he is inviting her to give voluntary consent to the love and the romance, not taking through domineering. Uh, we're told this in 1 Corinthians 7, that the husband has authority over the wife's body and the wife has authority over the husband's body so that you can't just live your life saying, this is my body, I make all of my own choices, but there is to be a symmetry of voluntary uh, giving up to each other and giving each other what they want. However, he's not a brute. He doesn't say, I want you, I want this now, let me in, start stomping or crying. He knocks and he asks and he requests, but he invites her because he loves her. Please, my love, offer yourself to me, he's saying. And she doesn't. So now, if we go back to the last uh, 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 two chapters ago, do you remember when he was saying of his bride, you are like a, uh, sorry, this is just last chapter, you are like a locked garden a beautiful fountain, a spring of life-giving water, trees with fruit. You're an oasis. You're, you're a garden fit for a king, but you're a locked, locked garden. The, the, the wall does not allow anybody in to come and pick its fruit, and that was a picture of her modesty. She's got beauty, she's got sexual love to give, but she was modest. She had a, a large wall around her by, by being her, her modest dress, and she had a gate that her husband was given the keys for. And so we were saying, this is the, the, the Song of Solomon picture of a, of a great wife, is locked to every other man, but luscious towards her husband. Uh, 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 guarded and closed towards every other man, but giving and generous and open towards her husband. And now we see, literally, he is locked out of his own garden, and it's not good. Now he's saying, you're a locked garden to me. We got married, so that wasn't supposed to happen. I don't like this. Now I'm just like every other guy to you. So she is a locked wall to him. He is being treated as a non-husband, and she's just lying there thinking, why should I? You know, why should I? Well, 1 Corinthians 5 says, <coughs> sorry, 1 Corinthians 7, 5 says, do not deprive one another. 
between husband and wife. Do not deprive one another of intimacy, except perhaps by agreement for a short, limited time so that you can devote yourself to prayer, but then afterwards come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Here's what Paul says. It is a very, very dangerous thing to be married to somebody, but treat them like you're not married to them. Uh, husband towards wife or wife towards husband in every area of companionship, but especially and including sexual intimacy, it is an extremely dangerous thing. So that Paul rises this to the level of Satan might be manipulating this situation to deprive one another of those things which are a blessing for marriage, that is sexual union and meeting of each other's needs. Now this was entirely voluntary. So she's got, why should she? Because she's married. Because she loves him. Because she knows the risks of Satan getting a hold of this situation. Because she's married to a king. So this really matters. He's the head and leader of a nation. But she says no. Now, we need to remind ourselves, this is entirely voluntary. She's prioritizing convenience and comfort. This is not a, 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 a matter of, of legitimate things. They, they're at the point in their marriage, they don't have kids. She has no responsibilities. If she has work tomorrow... Her husband is literally the king. He can kill whoever he wants or write a sick note for her so she doesn't have to go into it. There is no excuse that she really has. We go, no, you know, uh, the stars aren't right in the sky, etc., etc. This is just spite. She says, no, I am my own. The modern version might be, I have a headache. It's too hot. Uh, No, I have a stomachache. I just did my hair. I just got fresh face oils. I don't know. Thing, things like that, right? She will come, though, to regret this. She'll look back on this and go, I was childish. I was selfish. I should not have done this. Not because there aren't expectations, uh, exceptions, rather. There are, there are exceptions in the marriage, marriage life. But this was selfish. So look what happens in verse 4 onwards. She says, my beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. She's had a change of mind. I arose to open to my beloved. My hands dripped with myrrh and my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. And all this is saying, uh, these are like romantic incense and perfumes. Now, we all know that some of us husbands have wives with expensive nighttime routines and the face oils and the hair things and the whatever. This isn't what she's doing. She's not like she got up and she did her whole routine and then she got to the door. Uh, This this is just more uh, uh, language for saying all of the romantic perfumes and our ritual over her body and that's just sort of a picture of her emotional, physical state is now, you know, I'm going to let my husband into this room and I love him and I agree with him. I want to be with him like he wants to be with me. That's what she's saying. But look at what happens as she gets to the door. Uh... I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. Isn't this, gentlemen, absolutely crazy? He did literally what she asked for. Crazy, isn't it? She she opened her mouth. She said, no thanks. I'm not going to open the door. And then he 
he acted like she wasn't going to open the door. This is insane to me because men are actually built with a, with a mind-reading chip in our bodies. And uh, so obviously Solomon failed this. No, he just did, ex- he acted exactly upon what she told him to do. No thanks, go away, I'm not dirtying my feet, you are not worth that inconvenience. And then she's just blown away. Her soul failed her. That's language for almost dying. When she opens the door, <gasps> Where is he? Isn't it crazy? He just wore, he had the audacity. Where did he get that idea to just leave me alone? What would make him think that I didn't want him to come in? It's pretty simple. She, I, I've, I've talked with a couple before. This is not that friend, me and Joy. This is a different couple. <laughs> and once, and you know, normal, pretty normal marriage stuff. Bit of bit of bitterness, bit of fighting had sort of come up, and it wasn't good. And I was glad that they sat down with me. And 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 she said, "Oh, you know, this is how I know he's just, he needs some pastoral advice. He just left the house in the middle of a fight the other night." Oh, really? Why? Why'd you do that? And he goes, "Tell him what you said to me." I said, "Well, what did you say that made him leave the house?" And she goes, "I told him to get out of here, and I don't want to see his face again." Okay, I think, you've, I think you've got your communication problem right here. He's doing precisely what you asked him to do, right? This wouldn't really happen today. She would say, if it was today's man, according to evangelicalism, he would say, okay, my love, and he would go and do the dishes for her and sweep that dirty floor and then maybe beg and call his mum up for some advice on how to, how to treat her and he would give her the foot rub, hoping against hope to get lucky, whatever the madame boss lady calls the shots. He would, he would have begged, of course, yeah, not Solomon, not the dude who's king, not the guy who slays the Philistines by the thousands. She married a dude with, with testosterone. So while this is not necessarily commendable that he just ups and leaves, it's understandable. He's not going to sit there and beg. She's married a doer. She's married a guy with some grit. She's married a guy who, who is not just going to stand there being shamed and, and, uh, and, 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 and become bitter towards her and, and start begging. She married a dude with testosterone, one of them, and so it's turned into, hasn't it? It started with just this little inconvenience. Oh, I'll have to put on a robe. Although he didn't want that. Oh, I'm going to have to dirty my feet. He didn't care. But now it's turned into this. He is aroused and annoyed and gone, disrespected, a- angry and bitter towards her, in the city alone at night looking for somewhere to sleep. Is that, true or false, a bad way for a husband to be? Very bad. Also, she is now, it says, she's now aroused and she's disappointed by his absence, and she's lonely, and then she starts going into the city to look for him. This is what 1 Corinthians 7 talks about. We can think so often, eh, it's just a little this, or a tiny little that, or a once this, or a once that in, in marriage, whether it's sexual intimacy or any other sort of areas. But what miscommunication and selfishness, what selfishness really leads to, can be, can be destructive things. They, it always opens the door, Paul says, to something more dangerous. So, so our... Um, you know, the, the, the marriage books these days will say everything comes down to communication. If you don't communicate right, everything's bad. Well, that's number two. The first thing James says is, why do you have disputes and quarrels among you? Because you're selfish. You covet, you want, you don't have, so you fight and quarrel. This is, this is what has happened here. So look, by, by verse six, the crazy thing is they want the same thing. They're on the same page. That married people, isn't it the case that wanting the exact same thing, being on the exact same page, is not enough to get along? (laughs) 
You have to be on the same page at the same time. So here they are. They want the same thing, but they were going about it differently at different places, different times. So this is the, I mean, when you're out of sync, lots of things can go wrong. Sex is a perfect example, but it applies to all sorts of things in marriage as well. You might want the same thing, but at just slightly different times. Kids, another kid, a holiday, where to go on the holiday, a date, serving in ministry, volunteering for something at church, uh, you needing to have a p very important talk, or romantic intimacy. And, and it doesn't matter, gentlemen, if you want what she wanted half a second ago. If she said, fine, it's done. It doesn't matter how much you agree with her point half a second ago. So I'm told. I read in these books, right? It, it, when, when you're out of sync, no matter, no matter how much your wants are aligned, it doesn't matter if timing is not there. So, so this is what has happened. And, and, and it is in the case in, in this song of intimacy between the married partners. Things that can cause unsynced intimacy. I've got a list of six things. Things that can cause unsynchronized intimacy in marriage. Emotional intimacy, spiritual int intimacy, and sexual intimacy. First is a lack of mutual responsibility. This comes up often when I say to a husband or I say to a wife, in the area of sexual intimacy, this matters because they will be opened up and tempted towards sin because of your refusals, because of your neglect and constant rejection. To which the response is usually, that's his problem. That's her problem. What, I'm responsible for their sexual life and they're responsible for, for my purity? Yeah, according to the Bible, it is. Yeah, it's very selfish and childish to say, I'm just going to look after me and do me and everybody else is responsible for everything else for them. No, we are covenanted to each other. I mean, in the church, as neighbors, in the family, but especially in the marriage union, part of the covenantal way that we think about marriage is not, well, that's his problem. He shouldn't sin or she shouldn't sin, but rather I will take responsibility for them, regardless of what they should or shouldn't do. We're unified together by covenant. Secondly, the things that can lead to unsynchronized intimacy is a lack of a voluntary servanthood, a lack of a mutual voluntary servant-heartedness between one another. So that we say, my needs first. For her, for her, if the husband is doing this, what he wants, he gets, what he demands, yes, every time, yes, sir, thank you, sir, don't reject me in the, in, in the, in the, in the bed. Uh, if that is always, it's his needs first, he wears her very thin, and she's more fragile than him. Jesus holds him responsible, stops listening to his prayers, 1 Peter 3 says. If it's the other way around, and it's always her wants first, no babe, no babe, no babe, no babe, no babe, all of the time, then he gets extremely frustrated. Philippians 2 rather says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, this is what should mark Christians, in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. No husband, no wife has ever been at the status of God and needed to condescend beyond that. If Jesus can do that for us, Paul says, we should do that towards one another. So instead of 
no, 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 because my needs are primary, or you ought to say yes, 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 because my needs are primary, how can we both seek to outdo one another in showing servant-heartedness so that for him, he needs to get better at knowing when to ask, what, what, what sort of time cutoffs there are, what, what is a, be, a way to be a generous and thoughtful husband? For him, for her, it means that she needs to know what gets in the way of intimacy and make space and time so that it can happen. Both of you, this is a rule for married people, normalize saying yes to each other and saying no on the odd exception. Rather than what our modern day wants to do is just normalize saying no to one another because that breeds all sorts of contempt. Put each other's needs first. The third thing that gets in the way of intimacy is a full schedule. Maybe he's working 100 hours a week and he's home six hours a night. That gets in the way. He's coming home every night very late to a locked bedroom door. Or maybe the, the both of them are working or doing shift work or the schedule is just too full, way too many things going on so that the, the small amount of time you do get to be together, it's quickly do chores, get washed, get in bed, sleep ready for the next day. And there's no time to uh, 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 garden that uh, that uh, intimacy, or uh, a kid the, 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 in this full schedule, kids can come along, and, and if you don't know how to balance sort of the, the family priorities, marital sex can drop right to the end because we need to look after kids, and sometimes this looks like kids sleeping in the bed until, you know, they're two, three, four years old, or, or just about whenever, and that becomes a horrible blockade to intimacy. I don't need to tell you why. The fourth thing is unresolved conflict. Intimacy can't grow where there is unresolved conflict. We're told of, of being married that they were, uh, the first couple, Adam and Eve, were naked and unashamed together. And that is a picture of the kind of union that a married couple share emotionally, spiritually, and physically. Is that there needs to be between each other an unashamedness, an openness, and a vulnerability which cannot exist where there is unresolved fighting or conflict. Maybe she doesn't feel safe physically around him. Or maybe he's not doing a good job at making her feel secure in life financially. Maybe she does not give respect to him at all, and that is going to be unresolved conflict. Sometimes he's not being very respectable and making her job to obey the command to respect him very difficult. Sometimes she's not feeling prioritized at all, hardly ever gets seen, except for when he's knocking on the door at 4 a.m. wanting to come in. Or there is unforgiveness. There's sins of the past that are long forgotten, even maybe you're doing better in your marriage, but those things are unforgiven. Conflict that is unresolved. Fifthly, things that get in the way of intimacy is secret sin. I'll say this, that uh, uh, Paul commands regularity in the marriage bed, which will look like, look, Low average, say two, two times a week, right? Uh, but less than that, or weeks at a time without, there is sin somewhere. Some married couples are never going to put their hand up and ask this question. There is sin somewhere if it's more than multiple weeks at a time. He's either finding release somewhere else, or she, you, female, are intentionally withholding from him, or there is some kind of sin getting in the way of your union. Or it's either from sin or leading to sin, but secret sin gets in the way and destroys marital intimacy. Or lastly, past abuse slash trauma would be a word that a lot of people will use today. And this is not, uh, 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 not something necessarily as clinical, but to say that the past can affect, if there has been abuse in childhood or by parents 
or pre-marriage from somebody else, uh, or in a previous marriage from either somebody who passed away, or there was biblical grounds for divorce, uh, or, or maybe there is the, there is the, uh, the, the past uh, abuse or something like that in terms of guilt before you came to Jesus, and that hasn't been spoken about, and that's making things in the area of intimacy extremely difficult. All of these things to say, if you're a married couple, work on these, talk about these, but all of that to say... Lots of things can get in between the synchronization of a married couple. And Paul says this can lead to Satan getting to work. Therefore, never just cross your fingers and hope that the stars align and everything will work out okay. It will not be frequent enough, loving enough, or intimate enough. You have to be active at working against the conflict in the marriage. So here's how the progression has gone for, for the Shulamite woman and Solomon. There was a slight inconvenience, him late, her discomfort. There was a harsh rejection. Then there was a momentary separation. He wasn't moving out. He just went to find somewhere to lay down. Now there is a wedge in their marriage of conflict. And now we're going to see there is a risk and there is bitterness and, and potential sin. So look what happened in, happens in verse 6 and 7. Again, this is so funny to me. I opened to my beloved, but he had turned and gone like I told him to. Okay, my soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. This, <coughs> this uh, uh, three-line progression exactly mirrors what he did when he came to the door. He knocked, he called, he asked, and she now opens the door. She calls for him, she looks for him. Now they are completely out of sync, even though they want the same thing, even in the exact same way. So I called, he gave no answer. Verse 7, the watchmen found me as they went about the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. I love him so much, I miss him, I want to be with him. Now, this is one of those areas that we go, this must be a dream sequence. Any bodyguards who beat up the queen are going to have their heads removed. What is happening here? But there's actually a, a chance that it's not just a dream sequence and that there is an enormous misunderstanding. Do you remember what she said back in chapter 1, verse 7? Remember off the top of your heads? You remember? Back in chapter 1, verse 7, she said, tell me where you're going to be I want to be with you, and I don't want to go looking around the offices, you know, where's Solomon Davidson, where's Mr. Davidson's office, I would like to go and, you know, she's dressed in a coat and, and lots of makeup. She didn't want to be like a soliciting woman of the night who's walking around looking for her husband. That would, that would have bad connotations, that would not be honoring to her. She doesn't want to do that in front of other people. And yet that is exactly what she has become now in front of the watchman of the city. That is, that the watchmen of the city guarded against invaders by night, but they would also enforce the laws of the kingdom, including no sexual solicitation and prostitution. So if the watchers of the night in Jerusalem found a prostitute running between houses, they were to grab her, take her to the judges, that she might be punished, and whatever man has solicited her. So now you understand what's happening. Here's this woman, scantily dressed, 
probably a, a veil over her, running through the street with bare feet in the middle of the night, exactly what she didn't want to do. Her feet are dirty now. And then the, the watchmen bump into her and grab her. And whether or not they actually beat her or they, they drag her out of the street and put her in the light and push her against the wall and rip her veil off her. And then they realize she's the Shulamite wife of the king. We don't know. But, but, but whatever has happened, it is the scene that this tiny little inconvenience for her has become everything she has dreaded and she never meant it to go here. She didn't mean to cast shame upon her husband and shame upon her marriage and conflict and wedge and suffering into their relationship. She just wanted to go to sleep. Well, here we are. The problem has escalated and she is now bruised, battered, her reputation damaged in the eyes of others. Whatever the case may be, reality or dream, her conscience is heavily reprimanding her. She's coming to realize this was my fault and my problem. There is breakdown in the marriage, in the intimacy, in the communication, and in the companionship. And it's, it's potentially wreaking things that are untold. I would say this, I think more people... More Christians need to get in their mindset the spiritual significance of their marriage union. That is, to think of your marriage as an outpost in spiritual war, and to think of your marriage, your marriage relationship, as the most important thing to safeguard lest Satan wreak havoc. The ways that, th I mean, a bad marriage affects everything. A good marriage affects uh, the, the chastity, the, the family, the discipleship, the communication, the love, the Christ-likeness, and the involvement in the church of every single Christian. If you are married and a Christian, that is the next most important thing other than who your Lord is, Jesus Christ. The next most important thing, who you're married to and the state of that marriage. So that a lot of people want to, want to, I want to become a pastor, I want to do great things for the Lord, I want to do this, I want to do missions. But the marriage is in tatters. It's, it's like most people just sort of skim over that, the importance of marriage. But in Paul's mindset, marriage is a gateway to great service or a gateway for the devil to wreak havoc. It, it can look like this. I think if I was Satan, and this is what I've seen multiple times over and over again as a pastor, but if I was Satan, now some of you may think, I come close. I do not. If I was Satan, the most secret, the most embarrassing, the most shameful, but one of the most effective places to strike 90% of people in a church because 90% of adults are going to be married is in the marriage bed. It is so easy. It starts out with a tiny inconvenience. Sin, and now he's being led into maybe lust. Let, let, let's use this example. She's saying, you know, rejecting continually, He's got the, 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 a male drive and is now sinning through lust. Maybe, this is his fault now, but maybe he then turns to pornography. Or if it's her fault, maybe she now starts manipulating the whole sex relationship to get what she wants. Now they're living secret lives of sin and their hearts before the Lord are getting calloused. And what do we know? Whether or not in their church people are suffering, maybe even dying because they keep on taking communion. God stops answering the prayers of this church as much. This family, at least, there's ineffectual prayers. There's hypocrisy in religion. And now the kids look up and they see that their father despises going to church. He's abandoned family worship and genuine calling out to our hearts. We're, we're, we're being forced to go to church. I know that mum and dad fight all the way there and all the way back. There's bitterness at home. They're watching hypocrisy in front of their eyes. 
Now, the children, they lack a nurturing, loving, spiritual mother who respects their father. They're lacking the discipline and guidance that comes from a principled, guilt-free conscience of a father. They despise their church, and then they grow up and they do all the same thing. They don't have grace, they don't have order. The girls find a guy that at least meets the, the bare minimum requirement of her father, who is harsh, or he goes out, the young sons go out and find a girl that is not worse than his mother, but she's a piece of work. And so the cycle continues. Literally hundreds of people within just a few generations, as this cycle goes on, as the lost go unprayed for, the Great Commission goes unengaged in, and the gospel, the, the marriage which is meant to picture the gospel, is in tatters. Can you imagine just one family? If just one family, the devil, had succeeded in getting his wedge and his claws in between the mother and the father, bringing disunity and bitterness and, and destroying the family life of religion in the home, the Whitfields. If young little George had just grown up with less prayers over his life, would he ever have grown to be the man to preach to 10 million people and see 50,000 converted in the Great Awakening? If just any other marriage maybe went the other way that, that did go poorly, if it had just stayed more fruitful and faithful and godly, imagine the children that could have come out of it. More Spurgeons, more Judsons, more Whitfields, maybe. If I was the devil, I would focus in on the secret bed of marriage and wreak havoc there. I wonder if he's winning in your marriage. And here we see the solution. Look at verse 9. Turns real positive here. This is how I, why I think it's a dream. Because in nobody's reality, as she's getting beat up by guards, is there a band of gospel singers just standing around her. <laughs> right, so here's this group of friends. Uh, as she's just said, ladies, if you find my husband, tell him I love him. And they say, what is your beloved more than, other, more than another beloved? That's bad female advice to your friends. Eh, what's your husband worth? You know, there's, there's plenty of fish in the sea. Oh, most beautiful among women. Right? You got this girl. You're pretty. You can get another guy. That, that's not what they're actually saying. That's what it looks like. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, you tell us why you love him so much. What is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? And here she goes from verse 10 down to 16. I'm just going to read it. Women, take notes. Take notes. And this is what she says about her husband. My beloved is radiant and ruddy. Right? He's got a healthy tan. He's not sickly white distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. He's not blonde. He's got black hair, way more godly. But she's saying his, his head is a, is a picture of fine metals. He says, his locks are wavy, black as a raven. There you go. His eyes are like doves. Doves pair for life. She's, he said earlier, your eyes are like doves. She's saying your eyes are like doves. It's like in our eyes, they fix, they meet, and we never want to be apart from looking in each other's eyes. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. She's just stacking the imageries on top of each other. 13. His cheeks are like beds of spices. Okay, he's got beard oil on. Mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. He's wearing a cologne. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. She loves kissing him. His arms are rods of gold. 
set with jewels, so he's bedazzled. This is probably like the, the uh, uh, not bedazzling, but, but uh, a, gold ju- uh, a gold armory that soldiers would wear. She's saying, he hits the gym, he looks really good, his body is polished ivory. This is his torso, right? He's not a keg, he looks real good. He's polished ivory, bedecked with sav- sapphires. His legs are like alabaster columns, right? He doesn't skip leg day. He's got big, strong legs set on bases of gold. So she's gone head to toe, all gold. Gold at the top, gold at the bottom. He's precious to me. She's saying he can bear a load. Look at his enormous column-like thighs. Uh, his appearance is like Lebanon. Now she goes to the, to the forest. Out of sculpture and art and stonemasonry, strong, ruddy, handsome. Now she turns to the forest of these beautiful, strong cedars. And she says, he's like Lebanon. Choice is the cedars. His mouth is most sweet and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. What's interesting to note there is not just all of the awesome compliments that any wife could take one line of and just make your husband's year with one of those compliments, but is also that she's not talking to her husband, she's talking to herself. She's reminding herself how she got here, what she forgot about her husband, and what, what the reasons are that she loves him. She's reminding herself of why she loves her husband so much. This is a very good habit. Reminding yourself. Now, maybe it doesn't feel like that right now. It can because God loves blessing and healing marriages. But maybe it doesn't feel like it right now, but a good line for you to read is verse 10 and verse 16. My beloved is uh, 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 distinguished among 10,000. And what does verse 16 say? This is my beloved. This is my friend. Having that as a dogma in your mind when he makes you forget it, or when your own sin draws you to forget it, is a reminder, a good habit to remind yourself of these. He didn't just need the adoration, she needed the reminder of why she made her covenant vows to begin with. Of course, this is a reminder that that it makes a good foundation for no marriage to get married purely and merely because you love each other. Because that's not enough. You'll, you'll end up not loving each other one day. He'll do something. She'll do something. It'll grind on each other, and then eventually you don't love each other quite like you used to, and the affections are gone. You need something, a higher principle, a devotion to God's mission, which is largely carried out through the purpose and the instrumentality of marriage. That's what you need. A, a sense of faithfulness to God and his law, which is above your affection, and it calls your affection back into action. How many great testimonies there are of God healing and restoring marriages because two broken people in an all but broken marriage have decided God's command is more important than our preferences, God's glory is more important than our comforts, let's work on this together for the glory of our redeeming God. So, women... Let me, uh, men and women, let me encourage you to ask this question to each other. Husband and wife. Husband, ask yourself, how can you make her feel safe? In fact, don't ask yourself, ask her. On the drive home tonight, or your next date night, when you sit down, ask her, how can I make you feel more safe and treasured? Ask her also this very uncomfortable question, how can I make you respect me more? Because sometimes I make it hard and I don't want to do that. How can I live, change, do? What could I do to make you 
respect me more. Or, wife, then ask your husband, what can I do to make you feel more respected? Because some women want to show respect in one way, and that's not really how he feels it. So ask, how can I make you feel a lot more respected? Also ask, how can I be easier to love? Then I usually encourage people to do this. If it's been many years, if you're on the rocks, if there is conflict, print out, find your original wedding vows or wedding video maybe if you have that. But crack out your wedding vows or print off some off Pinterest or something. Find some if you don't know where yours were. And read them together and reestablish your promises. Rekindle that in you which first loved one another with the affection you felt on your wedding day. And then ask each other, what do I need to repent of? And this is the, the joyful thing. Bad days don't make it a bad marriage. This is the ideal marriage, still got a bad day. Bad days don't make bad marriages. But when bad days come, how are you responding? What do you need to repent of? What can you change? And the, the great reminder is if this is in the worst, if this is in the idealistic book, I don't feel too bad about having difficulties in marriage. Repent towards the Lord God recommit to loving one another again and throw fuel upon the fires of your love, romance, and intimacy. And this is where, this is where the, 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 there's never going to be some solution that then makes you a perfect husband or you a perfect wife. There's no 10-step program. You can't make her a perfect wife or make him a perfect husband. That's not the point. Part of the, the suffering in this life is just caused by the pain of this question. God loves us so much. If Jesus died for us like he did, why didn't he just perfect us? I mean, have you ever had that annoyance? Why doesn't he just make us perfect like we are in his eyes? Why the ongoing sin? That's his idea. Why does he let us keep doing it? And of course, we would, we would rely entirely on ourselves if we were able eventually to be sinless. I mean, it is part of the purpose of sin. It is part of God's purpose to allow sin to remain in our life and this world so that we are driven daily to the mercies of God and the help of God, never to forget that we are sinners in need of God's grace. You'll never get a perfect husband. You'll never get a perfect wife. You'll never be perfect. But friends, we have a gracious God who forgives our sins in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Now, married, single, or divorced, widowed, wherever you are, there is one solution to the first problem we address tonight. You're a sinner. You deserve hell. God gives mercy in Jesus Christ who died for your sin and rose again. Believe that and be saved. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for marriage. We thank you for the blessings of affection and, and uh, those things which drive us together in intimacy and love. But Lord God, those things can dwindle. So make us people of principle. Make us people of the book who love the Bible, who have uh, a conviction around your commands and promises. And would you, Lord God, be, be busy in our marriages, healing, restoring through repentance and uh, self-sacrifice. Father God, we pray that if there is anybody here tonight, they may not feel like this is a, a particularly relevant topic because they're not married or their marriage is fine, but Lord God, if they are in conflict with you, their creator, if they have unrepentant sin as a Christian or if they're not a believer and they are at odds with you, then they're under the, your condemnation. And I ask, Lord God, that you would give them faith to believe in Jesus Christ and be saved tonight. And all of those who are in the Lord Jesus and love his glory and pray in his name, we all said together, amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. 
For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.